Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine. With the weather warming up, it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things. Whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a Pilates class or outdoor guided walk, Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Hi. Hello. Welcome back to Old Millennials, a deep dive on shallow topics from the late 90s and early 2000s. I am one of your hosts, Emily Beijing. And I'm your other host, Margot Poupard. Well, a few months ago, in a pre-COVID world, if you can imagine that world, uh, yours truly was visiting a friend who works at the company Twitch. In one of their lounge areas, there was a giant orange couch, an actual, what I believe was replica of the iconic Snick big orange couch. It was at that moment that I knew we needed to do a Snick episode. Which brings us here to this episode where we will be talking about the iconic Saturday night programming on Nickelodeon of the 90s and early 2000s, otherwise known as SNCC. Oh, I mean, I, I don't know about you, Margot, but that Saturday night programming was just like such a part of my life from, you know, I don't know, like eight or ages eight to nine from like about I don't know, 13 or something. I, I watched these shows all the time. Yeah, I was a huge watcher of SNCC, probably not into my teens, but definitely was also something that played a lot on summer parties. And I was just obsessed with all of the shows that they had in their lineup, probably from like Clarissa Explains It All until everybody that I liked on all that left. I would say those were my those were my years of watching SNCC. For sure. I feel like I watched it maybe until I was 12 or 13. And part of that may or may not be because I had a little sister. Um, I find that I <laughs> there's a lot of programming that I caught like that was a little young for me at times, partially because I had a younger sibling. But uh, yeah, I mean, it was just at the time Nickelodeon was such a cool quirky channel. And I, I think I'm sure this came up as you were doing your research, just the amount of um, kind of free range they had to do programming and just try weird out of the box concepts that were otherwise wouldn't have had a home on say Disney channel or some of the other networks at the time that were showing kids programming. Like it was a very 
different place uh, to be and to create. And um, I don't, you know, since then, I don't think Nickelodeon is quite the same way it was in the 90s. But for for a solid decade, I would say the programming on that on that channel was uh, was very interesting and different. So for me, as I said earlier, SNCC, which stands for Saturday Night Nickelodeon, was two-hour programming block on Nickelodeon on Saturday nights. This block, which aired from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. Eastern Time, aired from August 15, 1992 until January 29, 2005. Around that time, the network would revamp the block as just Saturday Night Programming of Teen Nick, but has since removed any sort of name tied to Teen Nick or SNCC or what have you since 2009. That original block included Clarissa Explains It All, Ren and Stimpy, Roundhouse, which was this kind of weird musical variety show, and Are You Afraid of the Dark? And this is that year is actually the American premiere of the show Are You Afraid of the Dark? And one of the interesting interviews that I came across throughout my research uh, was with the creator of, of Are You Afraid of the Dark, DJ McHale, who said he wasn't sure who had come up with the idea uh, of SNCC. But it was kind of brilliant because it targeted an age demographic that had never really been marketed in terms of TV programming, just like kids who are not quite seven or eight years old, but are not, you know, they're not quite old enough teenagers to be out and about and like going on dates, but they're up on Saturday nights and they need programming. And the concept was kind of tied in some parts to Are You Afraid of of the Dark? So deciding, hey, we're going to air this show and we're going to air it as part of this like Saturday night, later night programming. And then it became this huge hit. Some of the other shows that would make their way onto SNCC, in addition to the ones we'll talk about tonight, Pete and Pete, Clarissa Explains It All, Secret World of Alex Mack, Space Cases, Kablam, Animorphs. Um, There were Mystery Files of Shelby Wu. Additionally, a ton of the Nicktoons would find their way on there, including, like I said, Ren and Stippy, Rocco's Modern Life, Angry Beavers, Rugrats, Doug. Um, But really, the four shows that we're going to focus on are going to be Are You Afraid of the Dark, All That, Keenan and Kel, and The Amanda Show. That's really all I had on SNCC other than it would get a revamp in the late 90s back when like Nick Cannon was hired to basically host everything because he was the new breakout star of all that. And he ha- he hosted SNCC for a while. Then they didn't have a host. Then, you know, it's things kind of switched around. And over time around mid 2000s is when SNCC would kind of drop. But for a 10 to 15 year period, it was among some of the most p- popular programming on Nickelodeon. So in, like I said earlier, the original programming included Are You Free of the Dark, which very much was tied to the concept of SNCC. There are few things that still haunt me to this day. Sadly, one of those few things is a low-budget Canadian kids TV show from the 90s that was made on a shoestring budget, Are You Afraid of the Dark? This show was a Canadian horror anthology that ran from 1991 to 1996, and then again from 1999 to 2000. It was created by DJ McHale and Ned Candle and first premiered in Canada on Halloween of 1991 on the channel YTV. YTV, for those of you who don't know, is basically Canada's equivalent of Nickelodeon, though there's now a Canadian Nickelodeon channel as of 2009, which is actually owned by YTV. The show would run for seven seasons and for 91 episodes. Now, before Nickelodeon produced most of its content, a lot of the shows you grew up watching were actually Canadian shows. Same with Disney Channel. 
Some examples include Inspector Gadget, The Elephant Show with Sharon Lois and Bram, Animorphs TV show, Flash Forward, Under the Umbrella Tree, even Are You Afraid of the Dark's closest competitor in terms of like kids' horror anthology shows. Goosebumps was also a Canadian show. Anyway, a lot of these shows had distribution deals to be aired in the U.S., including this show, so it would go on to premiere in the U.S. on Nickelodeon. Are You Afraid of the Dark's premise followed the story-within-a-story narrative. Every episode was framed by the Midnight Society, a group of preteens and teenagers who gathered around a campfire in a secret location, which is basically just the Montreal suburbs, (laughs) and took turns telling scary stories, with each episode centering around one of the members' stories. Before telling their story, each person would say this little line, submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society, I call this story, insert story name. They would simultaneously take some midnight dust, which I found out when I researched this, that the dust they were throwing in the fire is actually non-dairy creamer because it's petroleum-based. And then they would throw it in the fire, and the title of the story would appear in some great late 80s graphics. You then go into the story, which was often, turns out, based on some public domain short stories, urban legends, and fairy tales. For example, one episode was actually based on the short story, The Monkey's Pop. The framing of the stories and the submitted for the approval of the Midnight Society quote was actually an homage to The Twilight Zone when Ron Serling would always say after introducing each episode, submitted for your approval. The stories would often be thematic to what had just happened in the opening few minutes. So using whatever scenario just happened with the Midnight Society. Um, For example, one episode, Gary, the leader of the Midnight Society, was being blackmailed by his little brother because his brother found a love poem he wrote and wanted to blackmail him so that he uh, could be like his servant. So then Gary tells a story about a bratty little brother who steals his older brother's money and then is haunted by a clown until he apologizes. And then at the end of the episode, we get back to the Midnight Society and the little brother apologizes. So there's always like a sort of theme tied to the actual scary story that was being told. In terms of kind of behind the scenes, how things worked, um, DJ McHale, the creator, had pitched the show to Nickelodeon around uh, 1991 with his writing partner, Ned Candle, as this horror anthology show called Scary Tales. They were pretty much shot down at the network thinking it was way too scary for kids. And then a year later, they would pitch it again, and they got to pitch it to a guy named Jay Mulvaney, who had found the three-page treatment of their show, thought the network should move forward with shooting it. Um, And ultimately, what works with this show is it is kind of scary and dramatic, and it is very different tone than most of the, the children's TV shows that were on at the time. It touched the macabre and referenced a lot of famous old horror movies and classic horror literature. And this was actually done because at Nickelodeon's request or suggestion, so that in the event that parents complained about the show being too scary for their children and there were riots or whatever, uh, Mikhail could point to the episodes actually being directly inspired by Edgar Allan Poe or Daphne du Maurier. Additionally, there may have been a joke here and there, but this was not played over the top like some of the other scary shows on TV. So if you rewatch Goosebumps, for instance, it's a much campier show in terms of the kind of scary situations that happen in comparison to Are You Afraid of the Dark, where like there are episodes where I think children die or like get very injured or just like are never seen or heard from again. As for the campfire scenes, they were actually filmed on a soundstage and they would use real foliage to make it look real. And they would actually film a season's worth of those Midnight Society segments um, over the course of a week. Because if you rewatch the show, 
Um, those first few minutes, it's about five minutes of the Midnight Society. Then it goes into the segment. And then it's like, you know, that's like a 18 minute segment and then goes back to the Midnight Society for a couple more minutes. They put out the fire and that's that. And it was actually Mikhail who wrote all those seasons and hated them because he found them to be like such a nuisance and so boring in comparison to the actual stories. Most of the show was filmed in the greater Montreal area and they filmed at a lot of cemeteries. uh, But apparently there are strict laws around showing actual tombstones on screen, I found out. So they had several lightweight stock foam tombstones that they would regularly um, have on hand to cover up the actual tombstones in a graveyard. They also shot a lot of the scenes uh, that were supposed to take place in a forest. So if it was like an outdoor episode, it was actually in a protected arboretum. And because they don't allow pesticides in those, the cast and the crew would have to wear all these protective suits with netting to uh, not have to get eaten alive by the bugs. And they had to reshoot a lot of scenes because mosquitoes would end up on the actors' faces. They would only show the kids putting out the fire at the end of every episode, but never actually showed them lighting up the fire because they had strict guidance that they didn't want to show kids how to light a match or put, you know, start a fire uh, for fear of being uh, also, getting in trouble. Also, who the, who the fuck wants to watch someone light a fire? It's like the least <laughs> interesting thing to possibly do with your it, time. It would be a three-hour episode if that were the case. <laughs> Unless it was one of those, like, fires, everybody's outdoor pit that's just, like, a gas kind of thing with, like, a propane tank or whatever. Right. That's fine. But That's fine. Yeah. I don't think you ever need to watch someone light a fire unless it's, like, an instructional video. Truly. Yeah. That, that sounds about right. Much like Saved by the Bell, this show had an old class and a new class. Um, there is a first generation of the Midnight Society led by Gary, who was played by this actor named Ross Hall. The little bratty brother named Tucker, played by Daniel DeSanto, would go on to lead the quote-unquote new class of the Midnight Society. The show's initial run with Gary leading it was from 1990 to 1996. And then the revival would happen from 99 to 2000 with this new class. And they kind of intro the new class with this like three-part story arc called The Tale of the Silver Sight. And this is like the only arc where rather than them being at a campfire and telling a story that doesn't happen to them, the story, they are in the story. And it's like they're the grandfather of Gary and Tucker's grandpa dies. Turns out he was the original founder of the Midnight Society in like the 1930s. And they have to solve this mystery and they find realize that they're in their own scary story as this happens. But this is how they kind of introduce a whole new kind of class. It's very a la Degrassi, like that very, which is funny because they're both Canadian dramas with teenagers, uh, but well, very much also introduced. both on the same Canadian channel because that channel that you said that this was on was also on Degrassi. That's how I watched Degrassi was through like a satellite dish that picked up that station. Yeah. So, yeah. So they were both on the same station. Uh, they have a lot in common in the sense that it's like teen angsty a little bit, but... I think they're a shorter show. Wasn't it like a half hour, not a full hour? Yeah, it's a 30-minute show. I mean, we really don't get into any of the Midnight Society's, like, personal problems. Like, they might allude to one thing. Yeah. If they had expanded it to an hour, then they could have, but they didn't do that. Yeah. And I, to be fair, I think it works well because of this. Like, of course. We, we have consistency with some of the characters showing up every episode, but it's like we're not invested enough to care. Like, it's you're very much invested in the story that they're telling. 
what I find fascinating about the show and a lot of these Canadian dramas, this comes up a lot. It's a lot of before they were famous. Um, so there's a lot of who's who among the Midnight Society members from the first crop of kids. It's Joanna Garcia Swisher, Rachel Blanchard, who we talked about during our Clueless series episode, our mini over the summer. Um, they're both part of the uh, original cast. Additionally, Ross Hull, the guy who played Gary, uh, would go on to become a meteorologist for Global News, which is one of the big national networks in Canada. Additionally, Daniel DeSanto, who plays the little brother, uh, is really well known for doing a lot of voice work in the 90s, including he was Carlos on the Magic School Bus, another Canadian TV show. And he later played Jason in the movie Mean Girls. And he's the guy who asks Lindsay Lohan if she wants her muffin buttered. That guy was on Are You Afraid of the Dark? <laughs> In terms of the Midnight Society new class, Alicia Cuthbert would go on to be on 24, Happy Endings, The Ranch, and of course, she's been in a ton of movies. Um, Vanessa Lenges was also part of the new cast, and she was on American Dreams, and she played Sugar Mata on Glee. In terms of the kids who were actually featured in the stories and did like a guest turn, Ryan Gosling stars in an episode called The Tale of Station 109.1, which also featured Gilbert Gottfried as a DJ of a haunted radio station. Where well, Ryan he Gosling, a, he has an extremely scary voice. So he has a very scary voice. Fits? Why not? Why he not? Wasn't busy voicing a obnoxious parrot, which I truly think is like the origin of why I fucking hate birds. It's just like it all goes back to Gilbert Godfrey. But <laughs> of course, he'd be a terrifying DJ on this haunted Canadian show. He's not Canadian, right? No, no, he's not Canadian. I, I, this is, I think, this is one of the more more famous people they got to be on this show, and like this, he's like '90s B movie actor famous at this point. <laughs> uh, but uh, other people that show up on this show, Ryan Gosling, speaking of which, was actually offered an original Midnight Society member role. Um, around the shooting of the pilot, but he also got Mickey Mouse Club around that time. So he ended up picking that over um, Are You Afraid of the Dark, which was probably a better choice anyway. Hayden Christensen, right before Star Wars, was in an episode in the late 90s called The Tale of Bigfoot Ridge. A pre-scream and party of five, Nev Campbell, was in The Tale of the Dangerous Soup in 1993. Emily Van Camp from Revenge was on a three-episode arc, the the one we talked about earlier where the kids end up in, like, the actual real-life story. Erin mm -hmm. Ashmore, who was on Smallville and whose twin brother, Sean Ashmore, was in the original X-Men movies, was on two episodes as different characters. Um, Cyclops? His brother's Cyclops, right? Yep, yep. His brother's Cyclops. Um, Ryan Cooley, a.k.a. JT from Degrassi, plays, like, a spooky ghost kid. Oh, that makes sense since she since he dies on Degrassi. He dies on Degrassi. <laughs> um, and then Jay Baruchel is on several episodes. In fact, the creator Mikhail was saying in his interview that he thinks Jay Baruchel was the kid who was on the most episodes of that show besides Midnight Society cast members. He played like four different characters on four different episodes. And he actually dies in one of them. Like his first appearance, he dies within like the first 10 minutes. <laughs> There are also some special guest star episodes. So Melissa Joan Hart, although Clarissa explains it all was on TV at this point, starred as a babysitter in The Tale of the Frozen Ghost. And then Tia and Tamara Maori will be in an episode called The Tale of the Chameleons, which has a wild plot point where Tia Maori plays a little girl who gets bitten by an evil chameleon at a pet store. Yes, really. 
And then her sister, Tamara Maori, gets to embody the lizard, which morphs into a replica of Tia Maori, and then tries to take over her life. <laughs> I mean, uh, I understand that they're supposed to be telling spooky stories, but I forgot how ghost-based all of them were. Yes. And it just made me realize that I've that Are You Afraid of the Dark is a gateway drug to old millennials being into true crime now. Because it's like, ooh, tell me like a story, but heighten the stakes where there's murder or some sort of fraud or scam or identity theft or Ooh, whatever. For you know for sure. This like this show didn't fuck around. Like I I have to say rewatching it's still, it. Thinking about it, it's just like a lot of ghost stories and I don't know what was so scary. I mean it was probably for the same reasons why um what was that book called? Like scary stories to tell in the dark. That book was really scary. I mean eat that story about the girl who had uh, a piece of string tied around her neck that like kept oh, her head on. Oh, yes. I mean, oh like that God. shit obviously still stays with you. And then when to we got, we found the book like on a sidewalk score a couple of years ago. And I remember like reading a couple of stories and still being fucking scared because they're like gross, weird, inexplicable things. And I think that Are You Afraid of the Dark borrowed some of them. But all the stories that you've mentioned have been heavy on the ghost lore, and I just kind of find them to be a little – to be funny in retrospect. Probably because I don't take ghost that seriously. But. Well, it, there it's it's like very – like in hindsight, rewatching, I'm like, oh, yes, this is a ghost story, but like this is a far-reaching ghost story. Like there's just – this is a little interesting. It takes some twists and turns. Um, no, but you know what I was thinking as I'm revisiting this show? I was thinking that our generation was one of the last generations to have like truly scary things, you know, that we were exposed to. I feel like maybe I'm wrong, but I feel like kids, like younger kids and younger generations, a lot of these kinds of shows like didn't exist anymore. Like they they would have made them less scary. Um, and maybe because oh, it's kind of like a soft, a soft, yeah, scary, you know, yeah, intro or to scary s- shit. Or CGI. Yeah, no, I guess you're right because everything gets, uh, I mean, it's a lot of uh, like the kill count has to be like a certain way. I'd say maybe the closest, honestly, the closest comparable thing, but the kids would still have to be like at least 11 or so would be like The Walking Dead or something where, yeah, especially now it's kind of like changed a lot. Uh, I mean, it's still scary, I think, if you're not used to seeing that. But I think like the closest thing that we have now is The Walking Dead. I can't really think of anything that'd be appropriate for preteens. That's a show currently on the air. Truly. But maybe yeah, Netflix I- has something. I really don't know. But I feel like, you know, like even 13 Reasons Why, that's more of like a Degrassi thing versus like a spooky, scary yeah. I mean, Sabrina, but Sabrina, I feel like Sabrina is more... The darkest show on Netflix? You yes. can't even fucking see what's happening, literal, so how are you supposed to be fucking dark. scared? <laughs> Please. The only thing you can see is her goddamn hair. I mean, everything else, you're like, what? Who is that? And everybody's Who? white, and you can't tell them apart. You can't. So, no, I, I, I can't. And plus, it's like in that Riverdale kind of canon, which I don't think is appropriate. I mean, obviously, I, what the fuck do I know? Like, I don't have kids, but... I just don't think it's like super appropriate for like a 10 year old. (laughs) No, no. It's clearly meant for like teenagers of a certain age. It's Um, like 16 plus probably. For sure. For sure. In terms of the show, the end and the revival of it all, um, by 96, they had filmed 65 episodes, which if you listen to our other episodes about Disney shows and other kind of kids shows, 65 episodes was the golden number back then. You really didn't film more than that. DJ McHale would go over to Disney to direct this Tower of Terror mo- TV movie for the wonderful world of Disney, which I'd forgotten about. But this movie stars Steve Gutenberg and Kirsten Dunst. 
And I will try to find it on YouTube at one point this weekend because I truly forgot that this was wild. And they're not even playing like father daughter. Like I think Steve Gutenberg plays a journalist and then like Kirsten Dunst plays a preteen, but they're like not related, but somehow they end up together in the tower of terror. Like there's, it's all weird. I'm going to rewatch it and I'll let you know how it goes. (laughs) But uh, he, Mikhail, will go on to film two more seasons of Are You Afraid of the Dark? Not because of Nickelodeon, but because the Canadian producer who had the rights to the shows, the five-year licenses were running out. And in order for foreign broadcasters to relicense it, the producer suggested making new episodes. Nickelodeon at this point had moved away from doing a lot of dramas, which makes sense. Like when you look at it, it's around this time, the 99 to 2000 years where Nickelodeon maybe creates a handful of other teen dramas, but really doubles down on the cartoons and comedy shows. The show will finally end in 2000 after 91 episodes. And after that, Mikhail will go on to shoot a pilot for a drama for Nickelodeon about a psychic kid called The Strange Legacy of Cameron Cruz, starring Jesse McCartney as a psychic kid who's clairvoyant, who would solve ghost stories and other supernatural cases. Nickelodeon will not pick up the show. Um, and Mikhail points out that comedies were a lot cheaper to film for kids' shows and talks about how this was around the time where Nickelodeon stopped having kind of offbeat shows. They were, it was a little bit more, not clean, but a little more cookie cutter than it had been in the 90s. And so the irony there being that like, eventually Disney will become a bit quirkier in the next decade following that. And a lot of Nickelodeon's producers and writers that were working there in the 90s will end up getting deals going over to Disney um, in the following decades that ensue. In February of 2019, a revival of the show was announced as a three-part miniseries centering around a new generation of Midnight Society members. It premiered in October of 2019, was incredibly successful, and a second anthology of the show was announced in February of 2020. Um, Mikhail's gone on to become a really successful YA author of the book series Pendragon or Pen, yeah, I think it's Pendragon and Morpheus Road. Um, that's really all I have from the show's history perspective. Um, my last thing is a personal anecdote of this show has a few standout episodes that still haunt me to this day. More notably, the tale of the crimson clown, where um, I wasn't a child that was scared by clowns initially. Like some people were really freaked out by them. I was more freaked out by them as an adult than as a child. But anyway, there's an episode around the bratty little brother who steals his older brother's money that he had saved to buy their mom a birthday present. He's haunted by a terrifying looking clown. Coincidentally, there were several episodes of clowns, um, haunting related episodes of, are you afraid of the dark? Um, including one in like a haunted house or a haunted carnival ride. The clowns were a recurring theme in addition to like ghost children. Um, the other standout for me is the tale of the doll maker, There's this girl who visits her aunt and uncle every summer, befriends her aunt and uncle's next door neighbor's daughter. When she comes back to visit one summer, she's told the girl's family has moved away, but really she mysteriously disappeared. And we later find out she was trapped in a haunted dollhouse that was in their, their house's attic. And she's turned into a porcelain, a porcelain doll. And when the girl tries to get her friend out of the dollhouse, she starts to turn into a porcelain doll. And oh, she breaks and off then her didn't friend. Didn't they have like a dollhouse in the opening title sequence yes. too? Yes. So you're constantly having to re- remember this terrifying yes. fucking episode. Yes. Not fair. And what creeped me out the most, I think, is that as a child around this time, 
my grandmother was a very sweet woman. I, I miss her dearly, but she bought me quite a few porcelain dolls, which at first I really loved. Like I had a few of them. They were very pretty. But after that episode was very freaked out by the situation in my room with a few porcelain dolls. And yeah, it's just to this day as a 30 something, I am haunted by that episode. But that's Are You Afraid of the Dark for me. It was super fun to go back down memory lane, watch a few episodes. It's very Canadian. Like there are hockey posters everywhere. Mm-hmm. There's bagged milk on the kitchen table and some of these, Gross. you know, scenes. It's I do love the Canadianness of it all. Um, but really fun to rewatch. Um, just amazed at how successful it was given the budget and watching it now, just like what scared us and still haunts us to this day while rewatching now as an adult and realizing like how low rent some of this stuff looked. Well, one thing I really miss about network television now that everything is streaming and everybody watches stuff at different times and places, myself included in that, uh, is the experience of appointment TV. Like Thursday nights were for NBC, ABC had TGIF, and obviously Nickelodeon had SNCC. It might have missed me in 92, just about, with Clarissa Explains It All, but I thought it was really funny that the show premiered with that, and then also the show I've never heard of called Roundhouse. That was a musical comedy variety series. Yes. And then what you just talked about, Are You Afraid of the Dark? And then eventually they'll come to add the sketch comedy staple for kids, all that, in 1994. So... All that premiered in April of 1994. It would go on to have 10 seasons, ending for the first time, but there's also a hiatus in there, but ending officially for the first time in October of 2005. It was created and produced by Brian Robbins and Mike Tolan. It was essentially SNL for kids, and it featured pop culture parody sketches and a weekly musical guest all in a half hour. Early episodes were shot at the Nickelodeon studio in Orlando, but they eventually moved to their Sunset Theater location at a certain point, which I will talk about. So the background of all that is probably the most interesting part of it. And it kind of goes on for a little bit, mostly because of um, a person who I will talk about of it very soon, who was involved in the creation of all that, who will go on to have a very prolific career in Nickelodeon. So there's kind of like a lot of ties to him throughout this. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think you'll know. You know. Yes, yeah, um, I do. So. Brian Robbins and Mike Tolan, through their Tolan Robbins production banner, hired their head writer and eventual third season showrunner, Dan Schneider. Dan Schneider has since been fired slash let go from Nickelodeon in 2018 due to his abusive and possibly harassment style work environment. There have been rumors about him for a long time that are too dark to repeat here, but suffice to say, he's an asshole. Yes. But we will go, but he will unfortunately go on to have a fairly prolific career at the studio, which should explain why Nickelodeon would turn a blind eye until literally two years ago. But I digress. Dan Schneider is responsible for Keenan and Kel, The Amanda Show, What I Like About You, iCarly, Zoe 101, Drake and Josh, and a bunch of other shows that I didn't watch. Those are the ones that I recognize the most. But Schneider got his start where he met the All That creator, Brian Robbins, on the set of ABC sitcom, head of, head of the class. Schneider and Robbins, both actors at the time, were asked by the Kids' Choice Awards in 1988 to co-host with Tony Danza and Debbie Gibson, which wowie wow wow, <laughs> what a duo. Marking the beginning of their working relationship at the time, they were on the fledgling cable channel and they struck up a relationship with the producer, Albie Hesht, who worked on the Kids' Choice Awards that year. And he asked them if they wanted to just like develop something for the network, which like to your point earlier about how they were just sort of like, whatever, we just kind of like have this thing now. And if you guys have any ideas, like 
we're all ears because we've got this kid's choice award thing. And that's kind of it right now, it seems like. Yeah. <laughs> Um, so they were looking for more contact, but unfortunately, because they were under contract to ABC, they weren't able to. So 1991 rolls around and head of the class is over. And Robbins has started his production company with Mike Tolins. And Hesh, wouldn't you know it, is head of development of for Nickelodeon, Kel Chance. Initially, they are contracted to make this. I mean, again, to your point of like, just make whatever. We'll see what happens. Exactly. To make a truly wild documentary, a half hour doc about the network's game show host, Phil Moore of Nick Arcade and Mike O'Malley of Get the Picture and Guts. So they were supposed to go on a comedy tour together, but O'Malley and Moore, their schedule only allowed them to shoot for two days. So Tolan and Robbins had to make it appear as if they toured around the country in this. What? Luckily, it's only a half hour. Yes. They were impressed that they were able to pull it off. So Hesh asked Robbins and Tolans if they had any interest in making anything else, which like white man hanging out, just giving you shows. Here you go. No big deal. Don't care. What do you want to do? Don't know. Here's some money. Whatever. Cocaine. Like ding, ding, ding. I just feel like <laughs> I just feel like that's that's that whole conversation over a bunch of martinis and possibly an eight ball. They're all just like, well, I don't know. Let's do a sketch show about kids. Like It's just so fucking wild. Anyway. So they pitch all that. They bring in Schneider as the head writer, and then they're given the green light to develop it. They, Schneider, Robbins, and, and Tollins, were all influenced by classic sketch shows like The Carol Burnett Show, You Can't Do That, and Laugh In. It was Schneider's idea to hold off on writing the pilot and get the cast together first, which for sketch writing makes sense because you always want to write to your actor's strengths, but typically it's the other way around. You write the pilot to attract talent. They eventually launched a nationwide talent search for child and teen actors that lasted several months. And eventually Angelique Bates, Lori Beth Denberg, Katrina Johnson, Kel Mitchell, Alyssa Reeves, Josh Server, and Keenan Thompson were all hired. So I have a couple of quotes from Angelique Bates and Lori Beth Denberg about the audition process, which I think um, makes the audition process sound so fucking chaotic. So here we go. From Angelique Bates. When I first got involved, it was kind of funny. My mom told my mom had me in a talent show and I was one of the winners. An agent had a friend there who was the one that got me the all that audition. The process itself was, well, I did 10 auditions. I thought I didn't have it. They had us doing improv and sketches and all kinds of stuff. I went fully dressed as Urkel at one point. I was doing character voices. I had the glasses. I had the suspenders, everything. You name it, I had it. I got called a couple months later like, oh yeah, you got it, which was crazy because it was a nationwide search. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Lori Beth Denberg has kind of a similar experience and. 
um, a couple of other people that I didn't include here, but they were talked about how they would just like, they would just throw like two or three of them together and have them improv random scenes. Like one oh. of them said that they had them improv a scene where they were minors in Sicily. And they're like, they what? were like, yeah, we were just like doing, yes. I forget who it was that said it, but they were like, yeah, we were just, you know, pretending to mine with like really bad offensive Italian accents. And they're like, all right, maybe this. And yeah. <laughs> I think someone else said that they had to go through 14 different auditions, like, you know, callback after callback. But Lori Beth, she says, the reason I got the audition was because I was in a drama competition for my high school, which explains why she always kind of looked older than everybody else at times. Yeah. And my scene placed first in the competition. So she was also a, a drama person as well. So there are lots of different categories and all the first place teams and all the categories had a showcase at Paramount Studios in this little theater. And some of the producers from all that were there. And after a few of us from the competition got called to audition. So I went in just like a total dork. Not like it was like some big deal, just kind of a goof. And that was my first audition for all that. I wasn't nervous because I wasn't really taking it seriously, but that in hindsight served me really well. I had one callback, which was a little bit more interesting. I mean, I had the feeling when I went back for the callback that I was going to be cast. I can't necessarily explain it, but I just had this feeling like I'm going to go do this show, which was really strange because I had never done a show before. So I just went with it and did the material and I met some more people and, and then I left and I just had this great feeling about it. And obviously, she was like a mainstay for a long time. All right. In the early years, the basic format was a half-hour show that began with a cold open with the cast just kind of like being themselves. And then they would segue into sketches, some some runner sketches, some standalone sketches, a couple of reoccurring characters, and then a musical performance to close out the episode. After they filmed the pilot, it was shelved as screenings did not test well with the focus groups, consisting mostly of children with boys and girls of different age groups, but probably their demographics so between nine and 12. Nickelodeon said that the scores showed that kids probably don't want to watch a new sketch show, sketch comedy show for kids, which I thought was kind of weird, but maybe they just didn't prep them properly. But regardless of the, ne the negative response, Geraldine Laybourne, who was the president of Nickelodeon at the time, decided to pick it up regardless. Uh, writing partners Kevin Coplo and Heath Seifert were brought in to round out the all-male writer room for the first three seasons. And eventually, Coplo and Seifert would go on to write for Keenan and Kel and co-write Good Burger with Dan Schneider. After their second season in 1996, all that packed up shop in Orlando and moved to L.A. They shot their third season on the Paramount lot, but... Before season four began, Nickelodeon had started to set up what would be their more permanent location at 6230 Sunset Boulevard, formerly the Earl Carroll Theater. The show's production would remain there from 1997 to 2005. During this transition, three original cast members left. Katrina Johnson, Alyssa Reyes, and Angelique Bates, who was replaced by Amanda Bynes. Bynes was discovered by a producer while she attended the kids' comedy camp at Laugh Factory, which I thought was very funny. The idea that there was like a kid's comedy camp <laughs> that also ended in a showcase where you're a child would get an eight, whatever, like the 90s were crazy. I really like I can just imagine that being really early morning and some hungover comedian from the night before is still there, like passed out somewhere in the back room. Like I, and I they this just MC this child <laughs> showcase. Yes. It's just so fucking insane. Yep. The four season began along with the addition of Amanda Bynes, Leon Fireson, Christy Knowings, and Danny Tam Tamborelli. Fun Tamborelli story, I met him at a Sketchfest after party, and he really could not be nicer. He's a fan oh. of his own stuff, which makes it really fun to talk to him about it. He also has a podcast, or had at least at the time, and we talked a little bit about that, but could not be nicer. Maybe I'll post our photo to the gram 
eventually. Oh, that sounds – I'm happy to hear that. He seems like a nice guy and so does Michael Murata, the guy who played other Pete and Pete and Pete. So I'm glad to hear that. Well, I think it was the year before I met him or maybe two years before that they had like a t- – 15th or 20th anniversary of Pete and Pete at Sketchfest that my husband and I went to. And that was just a complete delight. They did a bunch of scene readings. They had already the strongest man in the world. They had both Pete's there. They played some of the songs. I mean, it was truly just so touching and you could tell that they all really still loved the show, which made everybody feel less like dorky for still loving it. So it was just really nice. And they had like the Petunia um, temporary tattoos that they were giving away and they had like the show creator. And so then I, when I talked to Danny Tamborelli about going to that, it was just kind of nice that he is such a fan of his own stuff. Because some people can kind of be like, "Ugh, I don't want to talk about the time that I was on Pete and Pete. I'm like, I'm on Broadway now or whatever. But he seems like a really laid back dude. That's awesome. Knowings and Tamborelli were both known to Nickelodeon producers. Knowing was discovered while taping a pilot for a show called And Now This, which sounds vaguely familiar, but I cannot put my yeah. finger on it. Tamborelli was obviously one of the Pete's on the titular the Avengers of Pete and Pete and then guest starred on Figure It Out, where he bef- befriended all that writer, Kevin Coplo. At the end of the fourth season, Lori Beth Dunbar le- left the show, as did Dan Schneider. Schneider left to create his own sitcom, but when that didn't pan out, he took over the Amanda show. Well, he took back over the Amanda show. In the fifth season, okay, this is wild. In the fifth season, they added Nick Cannon and Mark Saul. Even though Nick Cannon was barely 18 when he joined the cast, he was apparently already the all-that audience warmer and a writer on the show. What?! What yes. kind of teenager, like, this This is, like, that in itself is its own show, right? Like, that in itself is its own TV show. How did that even happen? Like, they've, did they break some sort of, like, whatever that Charlie Chaplin kid's name oh, is? Oh, the Jackie, like, Jackie, Jackie Gleason-Law or whatever? The, the Jackie Coogan-Law, yeah, yeah. In March of 99, Nickelodeon celebrated All That with an hour-long show dubbed the All That Live in honor of the show's 100th episode, even though chronologically it was the 86th episode. Whatever. The episode was a first and only occurrence in the show's history because it was done entirely live in front of a studio audience. The 100th episode was a veritable who's who of Nickelodeon slash this podcast's favorite stars. We have Melissa Joan Hart, Larissa Olenek, and Britney Spears, who was supposed to perform but had to bow out over a knee injury and was replaced at the last minute by Miss Lauren Hill. (laughs) What a time. What a world. Wow. The fifth season ended with the departures of Keenan and Cal, and Gabriel Iglesias was brought on to replace them. Like, LOL, I can't, that's not a comparable replacement. How old was he? Like, I don't know. I didn't bother to do, I didn't even bother to do his math. I just, I was so fascinated by the Nick Cannon tidbit because I was like, wait, Nick Cannon, how the fuck, how old was he? Like 16? And I had to guess. He was running the network. Running the network. Yeah, I have to guess that he at least started as like an audience warmer and writer like 16, 17, and then was hired like maybe a year later, the following year, maybe two. I mean, that still blows my mind. I don't really care about Gabriel Iglesias that much, unfortunately, for him. So I didn't really do any of like that age math, but I still thought that that was just a really interesting swap. And I can't believe. Gabriel Iglesias was on this show at some point. I must have stopped watching it. I I probably stopped watching after Lori Beth, but very odd. Did not know. At this point, they're just trying to plug holes in this boat, though, because they can tell it's like a sinking ship. So All That has an abbreviated sixth season, followed by a nationwide summer tour titled All That Music and More, hosted by the cast and featured a bunch of musical guests. Coplo, Schiefert, who had been holding it down since Schneider had left, and the entire cast leave the series soon after. In their absence, Schneider returns as showrunner. In 2000, all that was put on hiatus to be relaunched with the new cast. During this hiatus, Nickelodeon ran a series of specials in its place. 
By 2002, the seventh season was back with a whole new cast of teen child actors. All that the new class featured Chelsea Brummett, Jack DeSena, Lisa Foyles, Brian Herney, Shane Lyons, Giovanni Samuels, and Kyle Sullivan. The format of the series remained roughly the same as the original seasons, but episodes not featured a weekly host who would appear alongside the cast and sketches, but this weekly host thing eventually phased out later on because it wasn't successful. They got rid of vital information, which had been there since the very beginning, and was replaced with a new segment called Know Your Stars, which would appear regularly in its place. When it debuted in January of 2002, it had a distinction of having very special guests, Frankie, I have an olive oil business now, Munez, and Aaron, yikes, 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 Carter. Truly. Talking about (laughs) heartthrobs. We're talking about heartthrobs. In the following season, they add Jamie Lynn Spears to the cast. There's also this whole thing about how the cast was subjected to these like on-air dares that are part of some like larger deranged SNCC programming called SNCC On-Air Dare, to which I say, no thanks. Sounds convoluted and weird. At the end of the ninth season, Lion, Samuel, and Spears all depart. Spears left to go focus on her new Nickelodeon show created by Dan Schneider, Zoe 101. And the 10th season started in 2005 with a celebration of the show's 10th anniversary by by airing episodes of the first six seasons in a week leading up to a reunion special in April hosted by Frankie Munoz and featuring Ashanti and Bow Wow as the musical guests, which (laughs) I cannot think of a more 2005 sentence than telling me that some reunion is going to be hosted by Frankie Munoz featuring Ashanti and Bow Wow. The special featured the cast from the original series and then performing in sketches all together again. And back by popular demand, Vital Information Sketch makes a reappearance. The special also introduced Kiana Underwood and Denzel Whitaker as the new cast members. The special itself garnered 6.2 million total viewers, making it the top on cable and broadcast programming for the ages of 6 to 14 demographics. Chronologically, the anniversary special and season were filmed in the fall of 2004, Then Nickelodeon came to air them the following year. After the anniversary, the new season launched the week after, and the 10th season would mark the end of the relaunch era for the show. As Foyles announced the show's cancellation in September 2005, the entire cast and Schneider moved on from the series. In the somewhat present-ish time, the show's revival was announced as part of Nickelodeon's 2019 content slate in February of 2019. The show went on to premiere in June of that same year with Keenan Thompson and Cal Mitchell serving as executive producers, Kevin Coplo and Heath, Heath Schiefert returning as consulting producers, and the involvement of some other former cast members and sketches and behind the scenes and so forth, and nothing for Dan Schneider. And I have a very quick anecdotal story as well that I will try to keep short. I was so obsessed with all that, obviously growing up, it went like living single and then all that and all that at some point, I want to say like around the fourth or maybe fifth season. Cause I couldn't have been, I was probably either nine or 10. I begged my parents to let me go to one of like the cattle call auditions that they had for the, all that kids. Cause I couldn't think of anything that would be funnier or better for me to do in my time. But it was such an insane nightmare. I remember I ended up just like taking a nap on a bench at the Nickelodeon studios waiting for the line to die down. And when we did finally get in there, I just had zero energy and just had bombed whatever shit I brought to do as my audition. And I remember thinking, you know what? Maybe it's just better if I watch it. (laughs) (laughs) 
But it was fun regardless because they actually just took you because there were so many kids and they were trying to like keep, I don't know, 300 fucking kids between the ages of nine and 12 entertained. They would take you in like groups of like 50 to go do like a tour while they were getting through the auditions and the headshots and whatever. And mind you, you know, you like showed up at 7 a.m. And I don't think we left till like 7 p.m. And it was just the absolute longest day of my life. But I remember being awestruck up until maybe 3 p.m. And that's when it all started to turn. Man, I, I'm i jealous. It This this reminds me of the time that I tried to convince my parents to let me go audition for American Idol when I was 16. Thank God they said no. But that's like, I can only imagine auditioning for a show like that when you're 8 or 9 or 10 years old. Like, you just don't have it in you to be on it for that long. You know, like for 10, exactly. 12 yeah. hours. <laughs> Yeah. It's just, it's not meant to, it's not meant but to But also happen. no one like preps you. Like my parents no. weren't like, oh yes, a cattle call. Like they also had no idea either. So it was sort of a lot of uh, firsts happening all at once. But yeah, I'm pretty sure if someone was like, you're going to literally spend all day there, bring several books. Like maybe I would have felt differently or like bring a chair. There was a lot of standing. That's all I remember. Yeah. Anyway, but it was fun to take a tour was a really nice, the theater was really nice and it was like a really cool compound. It was like what you would expect. But my high school, I later would be really spoiled. Our high school was like up the street from Nickelodeon Animation Studio. And on the front of it, they had all of like the different big characters. So for a while they had like Ren and Stimpy. And I mean, it was always really cool just to drive by and see like SpongeBob and have him be dressed up in like seasonal gear or whatever. So honestly, that was good enough for me. Um, it's funny you bring up the the moving of studios. So like, you know, all that Amanda show and Keenan and Cal, they were all filmed in front of a live studio audience at Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida, like which they remind you of at the end of every show. I actually watched from above part of a taping of Keenan and Cal and figure it out. Like oh. I, I took, so when you would take the Universal Studios, you go to Universal Studios in Orlando, Florida. Oh yeah, the lot tour. Yep. I took the lot tour and then I went probably the last summer they were filming everything on that set because I went to Disney. We, my family went to Orlando, Florida on vacation when I was like 1996. So it was like eight or nine. And, uh, we, part of Orlando Studios, we took the Nickelodeon Studios lot tour and we got to watch them. We weren't in any of the live audiences, but we we got to watch from above them film Keenan and Kel. And I believe they might have been filming Figure It Out or they were like starting to prep to film it because there's a lot of overlap with the All That cast and Keenan and Kel. They were always those people were always panelists on on Figure It Out. But um, yeah, it was really interesting because I that was like the first time I'd ever seen anything like that. But I'm, like you said, they moved everything over to California. So I'm pretty sure that might have been maybe one of the last years that they were filming some of those shows over there. But Keenan and Kel would end up being one of the spinoffs of all that. And what's interesting is like for how much information there is about all that, you know, you and I were texting about this earlier. It's subsequent spinoffs, Keenan and Kel and Amanda's show. There's some stuff, but it's just not as rich of like an oral history. You're not going to find like a ton of articles about it. At least for me, when I was looking at Keenan and Kel, there was certainly a lot more about Good Burger than there ever was about the actual show, Keenan and Kel. But the show, much like a lot of the other Nickelodeon um, Disney shows, with the exception of all that, which had more than 65 episodes, only lasted for 65 episodes over the course of four years. But it was filmed in front of a live audience and ends up not really having anything to do with all that. It's kind of like Keenan and Kel had this great chemistry on 
all that. So therefore, they got, they got the spinoff show. The show was created by Kim Bass and was set in Chicago, Illinois. And it follows Keenan Rockmore and Kel Kimball, which are fictionalized versions of Keenan and Kel, and the adventures that they get into in high school. In addition to Keenan Thompson and Kel Mitchell starring on the show, the cast included Keenan's family, played by Ken Faree, Teal Marchand, who played his mother, and Vanessa Baden. And if you were a big Nickelodeon watcher like me, um, and you had a small sibling, you might remember Vanessa Baden, who played Kira, Keenan's little sister, who also had a crush on Kel. She was also on the Nick Jr. show, Gullah Gullah Island. Oh, so that, right. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. And Nick Jr. as well at the time had some really interesting programming. Like, I, you know, as I was doing this research, I came across some of that too. Like, Gullah Gullah Island talked about like the Gullah people of South Carolina, like which is a very like interesting, has its own rich history and like very interesting that everyone should learn about um, in American history. But like this was, uh, you know, a husband and wife would pitch the show about like, we're going to have a show about people in like the Gullah part of South Carolina and have it, you know, be very, you know, talk about the history and the culture. And like, again, Nick Jr. was also doing some really interesting things for children's programming at the time. But I digress. Finally, rounding out this main cast of characters was Chris, Kel's boss at the convenience store where he worked, played by Dan Frischman, who I found out when looking up his Wikipedia page, was also on Head of the Class. Ding, 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 the oh, connection. Yes. some more crossover. What was yes. the show? So it was kind of like... I think it was like Saved by the Bell, but gifted and talented. Like, I'm pretty sure it was. Like- Hold on. I just looked it up. I, I have the overview. It was an American sitcom that ran from 1986 to 1991 on ABC. The series follows a group of gifted students in the individualized honors program at the fictional Millard Fillmore High School in Manhattan and their history teacher. So it's got a dash of Dead Poets Society. Their history teacher, Charlie Moore, played by Howard Hesserman. The program was essentially a vehicle for Hessman, who's best known as uh, best known for his role as radio DJ Dr. Johnny Fever on the sitcom WKRP in Cincinnati. Yep. Uh, great. Cool. I remember Got one it. Of, Interesting. One of the other actors on Head of the Class, I believe, is Rain Pryor, who's Richard Pryor's daughter, if I recall correctly. That's that's really the extent I know about Head of the Class. But interesting that the connections keep coming up. And, you know, Robin as Givens is in this. Oh, really? Interesting. Yeah, she plays Darlene Merriman. Huh. A spoiled rich girl who is probably even more self-centered than Alan and whose specialty is our speech and debate. Both Alan and Darlene held the ambition of being named class valedictorian. Yeah, Rain Pryor plays Theola June, or in quotes, T.J. Jones, who had first appeared as a potential IHP, that's a member of their little Smarty Pants Society member, in season three, and is seen frequently thereafter. She is eventually added to the cast partway through the season four, T.J., who had a chip-on-her-shoulder attitude, okay, <laughs> was originally in the remedial class at Fillmore before proving she had the capacity to join IHP. Oh, my God. Interesting. Very uh, yeah, interesting. I was truly just doing research for the show. It was the first time I'd ever heard of this. So I, I think I've only heard of that show because of, like, some VH1 I Love the 80s episode. Oh, that's, that's that makes truly, complete sense. Yeah. Truly that's the, the where only else reason. would you have ever heard of it? I, I mean, really, that's, that's about it. So Dan Frischman is also, fun fact, a member of the Magic Castle in L.A., which – Oh, really? 
Yes. <laughs> Did I ever tell you that I knew someone in high school whose grandparents own the Magic Castle and she's now a magician's assistant? No. Like she comes from a family of magicians? Yes. <laughs> Oh God! What at what age we do you all, learn the craft? Is there like is there an age in which you're you become an well, apprentice? So she went to she went to Cal at the same time as I did. I like saw her from afar and like just didn't really want to talk to her. So I just avoided the places where I kept seeing her. I'm a I'm an adult and I cannot engage if I don't wanna. But it seemed like she became a magician's assistant after she had graduated because she moved out of Berkeley. I think like whatever after she graduated. So I assume it was that because I check to see if she still was, you know, a local, if I had the threat of running into her somewhere. And it seemed like she moved back to LA and she was now a magician's assistant and like, I don't know, was doing tricks and shit on her Instagram. I have no idea. So I guess the appropriate age is like 23 maybe to start training, but we got to go to the magic castle in high school, which is like not appropriate for like shithead 15 year olds, but what a time. (laughs) What a time. So really, back to with Keenan and Cal, every episode had a different plot, but really the the formula around each of these plots is very similar. It's usually following Keenan will have some sort of a scheme, like maybe they can get rich quick, maybe they can like do something or skip something as a result. Like there's always a scheme he has in mind. And Cal, his best friend, is always getting involved in the process. And then sometimes they get Kira involved using her crush on Kel as bait to get her involved as one of the accomplices. Kel, obviously, because he always played kind of the goofy, oblivious character to Keenan's straight man, be oblivious towards what's going on, would usually spill the beans or end up blowing their cover on the scheme, and then it would just like fall into pandemonium. So during the run of the show, the two would also go on to star in, in Good Burger, the movie, which was released in 1997. Um, the show, Keenan and said earlier, was created by Kim Bass, or Kim Bass, I apologize if I mispronounced that, um, who at that point was best known for being a writer on In Living Color and Sister Sister. The two other main writers throughout most of the series were Kevin Coppola and Heath Cyphers, who both served as executive producers on a ton of Nickelodeon shows, including all of that, The Amanda Show, Cousin Skeeter. They were also both producers for Good Burger and have gone on to produce several Disney Channel shows, including Sunny with a Chance, Jonas, and Austin and Allie, and have since returned to Nickelodeon for a show called Cousins for Life. Additional producers who are involved include Michael Tolan, who's gone on to become a prolific producer for ESPN, and in particular for the 30 for 30 series, and whose most recent credit was The Last Dance, which if you, I believe we've talked about a ton of times, Margo and I are obsessed, as well as Brian Robbins and Virgil Fabian. Um, Virgil Fabian will end up being one of the producers on The Brothers Garcia, which was a big show on Nickelodeon in the early 2000s, kind of at the tail end of SNCC. As I said earlier, the show ends after 65 episodes and culminated with a 70-minute episode finale called Two Heads Are Better Than None that involves a road trip and like a ghost headless knight named Arthur. That's really mostly what I have to say about Keenan and Kel. The theme song, Iconic, of course, was performed by Coolio and is called Aw, Here It Goes, which is a play on Kel's big catchphrase um, that was often said at the end of the show. As you guys might remember, the frame framing of the show would be that at the beginning, Keenan and Kel would show up in front of a red curtain and would introduce the episode then would go on to the show and and then they would act in the show and then at the end would come back and end the episode. So kind of like, are you afraid of the dark? There was a bit of framing, but that's like all I really have on Keenan and Kel. How about you and uh, Amanda show? 
Actually, I forgot because I somehow deleted it, but I meant to mention that TLC is, does the theme song for all that, which is iconic, obviously. But you saying theme yes, song of course. triggered a memory because how I would be very remiss and borderline embarrassed if I moved on to The Amanda Show without saying TLC performs a theme song for all that, making it a perfect 90s relic. Okay. Yeah, similar to what you were saying about Keenan and Kel, maybe these spinoffs weren't as had too much going on behind the scenes. Maybe it was because they were a little bit short-lived, or at least that was the case with the Amanda show. There isn't really a ton to get into, and the most that I could get into, well, has a lot to do with Drake Bell and Josh Peck because they got their start here, and we will lead directly into Drake and Josh after this show. But before I get ahead of myself, the Amanda show is a spinoff of all that, centering on Amanda Bynes, serving as Nickelodeon's version of Carol Burnett after she became one of the kids on all that work that became a breakout star. The Amanda show premiered in April of 1999 and ran for three seasons and ended in September, 2002. The Amanda show starred obviously Amanda Bynes, Drake Bell and Nancy Sullivan and would eventually feature Josh Peck originally created by and written by Dan Schneider. He briefly left the show to work on a different sitcom he created, but he didn't leave the writer's room in incompetent lady hands. No, no, he made sure to leave um, writers for a 10-year-old girl that were all dudes. John Hoberg, Stephen Molero, and Andrew Hill Newman. Yes, more men. That's exactly what I was worried about. The year after the Amanda show ends, Schneider would create Drake and Josh. So, I mean, you kind of already heard the creation and the concept of the Amanda show was kind of to be like a variety show in the Carol Burnett style, but they needed to set it apart in some ways from all that. So they set the Amanda show in a fictional universe where it's already very popular and they did like a show within a show trick and some of the more popular sketches that they would reoccur and bring back, uh, obviously. Some of the more well-known reoccurring sketches are Judy Trudy, which was like a Judge Judy spoof where they had the dancing lobsters come in at the end. So you want $5, which is always really funny and I think just like mean-spirited and Blockbuster, which is a spoof obviously on Blockbuster. And she also, I believe, had... Oh, God. Her, like, little girl that answers questions oh, on Ashley. her bed. Thank you. Also came with her. I think her her character IP made it over to the Amanda show in addition to new <laughs> characters. Because <laughs> she also had the the hot tub stuff, too, where she'd, like, give advice. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So that came over to the Amanda show as well. But post-show fame... Even though The Amanda Show ended in 2002, it found a second life with reruns on The End, British Nicktoons, and Nickelodeon Canada. But up until 2012, they were airing episodes on them. But when when Amanda Bynes got into legal and mental health problems, they pulled them and you couldn't catch Amanda Show reruns anymore. Finally, when the 25th anniversary celebration of SNCC in 2017 came about, they decided to reinstate The Amanda Show reruns and they were featured heavily during the 25th celebration as well. Some fun facts about the show. Even though Amanda's show did not last very long, they did manage to snag a lot of cameos. They had Ashley Tisdale, who played a cold cure in three episodes, Taryn Killiam, Sherry Appleby, Kathy Lee Gifford, and Adam Brody played Greg Brady. What? The Amanda- yes, I know. There wasn't really any other info, and I couldn't find the sketch. So I was like, I suppose I will just take this as fact. The Amanda Show was Taryn Killian's first job out of school, and he appeared in Moody's Point, which is a parody of Dawson's Creek. The Brady connection oh, yeah. is Taryn's mom in the sketch was played by Maureen McCormick. 
who couldn't have been that much older than Taryn Gilliam at that point. I mean, like, maybe, what was she, like, 25? And he was, like, 22. It's ridiculous. But whatever. Moody's Point was pitched to Nickelodeon to be its own spinoff, which would have heavily featured Taryn's character, Spalding. But the network decided not to pick it up. And when I looked up what the plot was going to be, it just sounded really weird and meta. And I don't think it's something that would have it maybe would have done well. I don't know, on like Showtime or like something a little bit more bright, like brainier. But like for kids, I feel like they would have totally missed the point. It oh, just for sure. For sure. Um, Let's see. Oh, and the last little fun fact here is a season two episode that premiered in March of 2001 was pulled from airing in reruns and hasn't aired ever since. Because it was a family, or sorry, because it was a sketch about a family called the Lucklesses who deal with persistent bad luck before their home is ultimately hit by a meteor and destroyed. So after September 11th, the network decided it was too violent to ever re-air. So that's very sweetie pie. I feel <laughs> of like you guys night, to think this season has been like the 9/11 connection has come up in almost every single episode that we've done this season like at one during point a or pandemic another, where we yes. experience a 9-11 like every three days I don't I mean of, I see the irony for sure <laughs> that we yeah. keep bringing it up it just but, but it just keeps coming up because whatever moment in pop culture 9-11 happens and then there's something that they're like we can't release this album a subsequent or, bad yeah. yeah a subsequent yeah. reaction well I mean just look at the one hit wonders episode yeah that's what I, and I that's feel what like, I was thinking of yeah yeah, that's a whole episode of just 9-11 killed my music career. <laughs> God. Really? But, I mean, as you know, Amanda Bynes would go on to be in a lot of comedies. I, I literally just last night watched She's the Man because it was on HBO. And that movie's a delight. She has great comic timing. She obviously has been going through some stuff and some things in the last couple of years. And it seems like she's pretty retired from acting. I feel like she possibly didn't have a great time with some of her experiences at Nickelodeon, but that's not for me to infer or, you know, unless she's ready to tell people, but you know, I, I miss Amanda Bynes. It was kind of nice to see some early, some early work. She was truly just so, so funny. I mean, even just rewatching it now, I mean, it still lands like her impression of judge Judy is funny. She, I, what I really loved about Amanda Bynes. And I think this speaks to Nickelodeon. Like she was, she was a pretty child, but she wasn't like, obnoxiously pretty I don't know how to say this but like I appreciated that they'd gotten she like, just not wasn't she wasn't precocious which I really yes. loved she was yes. just a funny kid she was a funny kid but was able to be above like a class clown that gets on your fucking nerves like she she just seemed she seemed like your really funny friend and I think they did a really good job of having that kind of come across on the Amanda show and I think that was obviously part of the appeal of her being the breakout star of all that. And it also seemed like everybody really liked her and she got along with everybody because I think she used to make people like break in scenes and stuff. Like her Ross Perot was very funny. Yeah. And that's crazy because at the time she was what, 10 or 11 years old doing an yeah, incredible but, Ross Perot. Like, what? But, you know, she also, as a fellow 10 year old, like made me aware of like Ross Perot being like a person. Like I had no idea the show. I've had so many like adult contem- contemporary to the time pop culture references. And I, it's, I think obviously it's good for kids to be exposed to that stuff, but you realize it in hindsight of being like, wow, yeah, I thought this Ross Perot impression was very funny, but I wasn't fully aware that he was like a terrible politician (laughs) on top of everything. So. Well, it was for me, I don't know about you. It was a fun walk down memory lane of just what Nickelodeon once offered. And uh, yeah, I mean, I really enjoyed this episode. 
If you like listening to our content about Nickelodeon and want to hear more of our content about the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, you should check us out on any platform where you like to listen to podcasts. We're on Apple Podcasts. We're on Spotify. We're on Pocket Casts. We're on basically anywhere we can find podcasts. We're probably there. So check us out. We're the old millennials. Additionally, you can find us on uh, Medium. We have blog posts that are a lot of fun. So check them out. I'm still being held accountable for one that I promised I would write two episodes ago. So you'll get to read something on me writing about the Baja men at one point, but uh, I need to get that done. Additionally, <laughs> you can find us on social media. We are on Instagram. We're at the Old Millennials Pod. And same with Facebook. We are at the Old Millennials Pod. So check us out there. We're always putting up great content. Additionally, if you really love what you're hearing, please rate, subscribe to us, like us, write a comment, let us know if you're, you know, you like what you hear. We love great feedback. We love five star reviews. Uh, just, yeah, please check, just rate and subscribe to us. Finally, if you want to hear us individually, uh, we are both on Twitter. I'm at Emily A. Beijing. And I'm at Marg Shirope. And until next time, we say bye. Bye bye. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.